0: This is episode 264 of the Andrew Hines Real Estate Investing Podcast. And now a word from our sponsor, Control and Compound. Here's how infinite banking works in under 60 seconds. You have to save your money somewhere. Well, we think the best place to save it is inside a cash value life insurance policy. You save some money and they're gross, tax-free for the rest of your life. Then an opportunity or emergency comes, comes along. Let's say a few years down the road, you can buy a business, buy a property, buy an income-producing asset. You leverage the infinite banking policy,
1: borrow against your asset, take advantage of the opportunity, but your money still stays in the infinite banking policy. You're not borrowing your money. You're borrowing the insurance company's money. So your money's in the policy. It's in the opportunity and it's providing a death benefit. Rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. You get to retirement you have this massive cash value, life insurance, leverage that tax-free and you don't repay those loans. You sit on the beach and you spend that money tax-free every
0: month doesn't show up on a tax return and you leave your family a huge tax-free death benefit for more information visit www.controllingcompound.com forward slash andrew hines welcome back to the show today i have seth ferguson on and seth has been on this show a couple of years back you might know seth as the host of the multi-family conference in toronto that happens annually this is the largest multi-family conference that happens in canada and Let's just say that Seth really does swing for the seats. Uh, this guy does not play small, and he has built an incredible network and incredible level of credibility with what he's done, and it's nothing short of impressive. So, in this episode, Seth shared all about humble beginnings as a referee, uh, coaching, or a referee for hockey, and then eventually let that dream go and focused on real estate full-time notably Seth is investing in multi-family projects in f- the state of Florida these are large multifamilies with several people involved uh, as stakeholders in these properties and uh, they're acquiring hundreds of units at a time so not playing small with that either and uh, I think it gives him a big level of credibility to be hosting the uh, conference that he does where he's getting some pretty incredible guests and I'll actually have a special link for that conference so that that. that you can get the tickets for at If you're thinking about attending the event, uh, it'll be the best price they're gonna offer. So Seth has provided me with that. I'll make sure that's in the show notes of this episode if that's something you're interested in. So uh, just before we get into the episode, I wanna remind you that if any of the terminology is new, make sure you check out the first 10 episodes of the show uh, because that's really when we got into the fundamentals and then come right up to modern episodes and uh, dig in. And uh, once again, if you're enjoying this show, please share it with somebody you think it could help. Now, without further ado, Let's jump into the episode with Seth Ferguson. Hello, and welcome to the Andrew Hines Real Estate Investing Podcast. I have Seth Ferguson back on the show after quite some time. It's been like a hundred episodes, but and last time I had John, I was in Florida too. So this is uh, this is our theme. Oh, but- you're in Florida right now. Yeah. Freezing in Florida. It's not uh, very well. warm right now. <laughs>
1: Actually, I, I'm speaking at an event in Miami in a couple of weeks, so I might run into you. You never know.
0: Oh yeah. Cool, man. We'll come on over to Naples. Yeah. Nice. Um. Yeah. Cool, man. Well, let's let's do a little catch up for people who, who didn't see the last episode uh, because there was uh, a lot of good stuff given out then and it's been so long and I'm sure many of them haven't heard that episode. So uh, why don't you give a high level who you are, what you do, Seth, and we'll go from there.
1: Yeah, so I'm uh, I'm I'm a pretty cool dad still at this point, but uh, in terms of work in real estate, uh, yeah, most people know me as the guy who runs the multifamily conference, which is Canada's largest uh, real estate investing conference, and I'm also the COO of a real estate investment firm uh, called CPI Capital. And, uh, we acquire underperforming apartment buildings in the U S and, uh, we, uh, we partner in those deals with our investors and, uh, we turn those things around. Uh, so that's, uh, that's what we do in a nutshell.
0: That's so interesting. And I think we talked about that a bunch last time you were starting a fund and kind of the intricacies of working between Canada and the U S are your funds, all U S based. Yeah.
1: So, uh, all the deals we do are in the States. Um, So, you know, as Canadian investors, and that's a whole topic we can get into, um, but uh, as Canadians, it's really important to make sure you're investing in something that's structured the right way so you don't end up getting double taxed, uh, which is not something we want to do because as Canadians, we pay too much tax uh,
0: to begin with so yeah that's right that's yeah. right i didn't mean to mislabel it as funds were you mostly doing syndications on these various different uh buildings yeah
1: yeah, yeah. so so we're, we're working on our fund right now for canadians um in, in terms of just being the most efficient we can be in terms of getting that money across the border um but uh but yeah like uh, your your typical syndication deal uh that's uh we're bread and butter for sure
0: Okay. Yeah. And just for people who aren't familiar with that syndication is you're just pulling people in project per project. So you might create a a corporation or an LLC, and then you're, you're basically people are buying into that with shares or units into that LLC.
1: Yeah, for, for sure. So with syndication, the beautiful part about that is the investor has control over where their money's going. So when when we present a deal to our investors, we're saying, hey, Mr. And, Mr., Mr. and Mrs. Investor, we have this deal under contract. This is our business plan. These are our expectations for deal performance. Would you like to invest? Yes or no? And as the investor, you can say, hey, yeah, this deal is great. This fits all the boxes I'm looking for. Or, oh, no, um, you know, this one doesn't quite meet what I'm looking for right now just let me know about the next one so as the investor you have a lot of uh, say in terms of where your money goes because you're making the final decision as opposed Mm -hmm. to a fund which is where you invest in the fund criteria and then that's uh, spread across the fund
0: yeah so for some people that'd be a good thing for some people they probably don't want that right They, they probably want the criteria but then of course there's other people who want to micro pick which deals they're in and that's pretty much who you've been serving so far yeah, for
1: for sure right there's pros and cons to, to both one of the pros with the fund is that you don't have to keep looking for your next deal you find an operator you enjoy working with uh you know everybody's on the same page you're comfortable with them managing your money the, the fund's going to go out acquire and divest of multiple deals so you with a syndication, when the deal's up, you get your big fat check. But now you're like, okay, well, now where do I put my money to work? Uh, with a fund, it just keeps going and going and going. Yeah. So that, that's it's one of way, the way less
0: effort, right? But for sure, of, of course, it does require maybe a higher level of trust, obviously in the operator. But you know, that's a natural progression, I would think, to go from syndication. Now you're going into funds. It just makes things easier. As those people who started with you on the syndications want to just keep rolling.
1: For, for sure, and at the end of the day, it's all about efficiency. Um, and, uh, you know, there's pros and cons to both the, the syndication and the fund model, both on the, uh, on the operator, the sponsor side, but also on the LP side.
0: Okay. Yeah. yeah and I, I want to dig into more of what you're doing. Cause it's, it's pretty crazy. Obviously you didn't start syndicating big buildings. Like what are we talking? Like a couple hundred units, uh, on your average building.
1: Yeah. Our buy box is really within that hundred to 250, 300, uh, unit deal. Um, that that's where we do most of our uh, hunting.
0: Okay. So we're going to get into that in a moment, but it didn't start there for you. Where did the real estate investing journey start? I think you even posted this the other day and it reminded me that you told me you used to be a referee.
1: Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah.
0: (laughs) What was Were you a referee in the NHL?
1: No, no, no. Uh, A lot of the guys I worked with um, ended up uh, making it to the show. I was trying, uh, but my window closed. Uh, But yeah, I I was uh, down in the States uh, doing it as a full-time job, which was pretty cool, living out of a suitcase. I came back to Ontario uh, when I realized I needed a real job. I got my real estate license to start selling houses because I thought at the time, um, selling real estate agents could set their own schedule, very loosey-goosey. Little did I know that real estate agents actually work a lot. Uh, so <laughs> I kept doing the hockey for another oh, nine, 9, 10 years, something like that. And I finally packed it in and became washed up uh, when my son was born.
0: <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. yeah, you can't really travel all over the place with a little one, unfortunately, or not very easily. No, 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 no. I, I still
1: remember I was driving home from uh, Saginaw, Michigan. Um, the Saginaw Spirit are an OHL team, and my son had just been born. And uh, I was like, what am I doing? Because it was like 1.30 in the morning, something like that. I was like, this is not, uh, not good anymore.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, so had you invested in real estate at that time?
1: Oh yeah, 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 that that was much yeah. later on. Um but uh yeah, the, the main the main way I got into real estate investing with the single family home stuff was I realized that like, I, I was making pretty good money uh selling selling houses. And uh, as a young guy, I also had some pretty stupid expenses. So I had the nice car expense, I had this four bedroom house I was living in at the time all by myself. Like it it was Mm -hmm. stupid to do um so uh, all these commissions would come in but it would go out just as fast uh to uh, you know, serve all these expenses. And I realized that, uh, I needed to start investing in something. So I would have something left over. And, and that's where I started learning more about what goes into acquiring single family homes. I think the first book I read was Don Campbell's book, uh, the acre system. And yeah. I, I think that's a pretty good introduction to residential real estate investing for a lot of people. And it kind of spiraled from there.
0: Nice. And like time frame wise, like when did you buy your first property?
1: Oh, uh, man how old was i i was late late 20s okay yeah i I think you're not that old now though what so five years ago (laughs) no see these gray hairs uh no i am uh how old am i now i'm i'm 37 now yeah so it's
0: uh yeah it's uh it's been some time same same but i got you beat on the grays man
1: (laughs) (laughs) now my my when my beard comes out it's all uh, white now i look like santa claus
0: yeah. That's the hard part about aging, but, uh, not to digress yeah. here. Okay. Yeah. So you've been, you've been in it for about 10 years and buying properties. Uh, it it's just, I, I really wanted to draw out the change because, you know, people don't start, you know, hosting massive conferences and investing in syndications in the U S there's a progression there. There's a, there's logical steps and realizations along the way. What were some of the key milestones where it was like, okay, it's time to play bigger.
1: Yeah. So, uh, I blame my son. Uh, because uh, when he was born, that was the game changer. Uh, I, I I knew that I'd made more money owning real estate than I did selling real estate. so that the the investment income or the investment profits were a lot greater. I just realized that the vehicle I was investing in the actual asset class was the wrong type because you know when my son came along, I reassessed all my goals and now I'm a dad, so I want to go out and just crush it. And uh, I realized I would have to own a thousand houses and that's not scalable. I can't imagine dealing with a thousand individual properties with a thousand roofs, a thousand different tax bills, all that kind of stuff. So I started looking at retail, uh, industrial uh, office and multifamily made a whole lot of sense to me. Uh, so that's uh, that's really where I ended up. And I started educating myself about the multifamily side so that that was the first big uh big, I guess, game-changing shift. Uh, the second one uh, came a little soon after that, where I was introduced to the real world of real estate. Uh, and what I mean by that is before, I always thought that you had to save up on your own, put your own uh, money into the deals, and you just did it slowly, like one by one. You acquire property, you save up, you refinance, and, and you do the next one. I didn't realize how much money was out there looking for capital. So I'd done a. I met a gentleman who invited me to this real estate event in Philadelphia. And at the time, I maxed out my credit card to get there. And it was kind of funny because I was out to dinner with all these. You know wealthy real estate investors and i didn't even have money really to pay for food like i was throwing like 20 bucks down uh, on the table when everybody's dropping hundreds uh but uh, i got in the room and these were people who were syndicating deals they were um, doing funds these people had raised millions of dollars and i was a deer in the headlights i had no idea this world of real estate existed and that's when i really started to understand what the real estate game is all about Uh, because before i was kind of like think of a hill when you're at the bottom of the hill, you don't see what's on the other side. I was just starting my, my trek up. But once I got in that room for, I think it was four days, and I started learning about how these people were doing deals, now I was at the top of the hill and I could see everything below me. And, and I really understood how the games played. And that was a huge shift in terms of
0: how I looked at real estate. How many years ago would that have been? Oh, that was uh, probably six.
1: six five six years ago so okay. re- relatively soon uh well maybe maybe uh maybe five years ago yeah okay.
0: so you went to that event that was a U.S. based event I'm guessing
1: yeah for sure yeah I was in uh, Philly yeah
0: Philly okay and uh that's obviously a big change so from there what's the next step though because do you you know did you go out and start looking at big buildings or were you kind of a bird on the shoulder you know looking over somebody's shoulder uh on deals they were doing
1: yeah, for, for sure. So um, at that time, I was going through the worst time I like, I basically lost everything at that point. Um, so I was smack dab in the middle of a major life reset. Um, so that, that uh, yeah, so what, what I focus on at the start was basically educating myself on, okay, I know this is how the game is played, but like, I don't know how to execute yet. So I, I started uh, talking with a lot of pretty successful people understanding how they approach deals, all that kind of stuff. And then that kind of gave me the momentum in terms of positioning myself in terms of, hey, how do I become a person where somebody actually wants to invest capital with me? Mm -hmm. And I, I think that's a step a lot of people miss. They just assume, okay, well, people should give me money so I can place them in deals. Well, that's not the way it works. So you have to be somebody where people want to invest money with you. So how do you become that type of person uh, where people feel comfortable? They'll even seek you out and say, hey, listen, you are somebody who I trust with money. Like, what can you do uh, to help me out kind of thing?
0: Yeah, so you started down that journey of becoming that person. I think that that's a critical step because it's not just for them, not just so you can raise the money, but it's so that you can, if you get the money, You'll actually be responsible with it and do good with it.
1: Yeah, hundred percent. Right, because we all know of situations where people start raising money and they have no business being a steward yeah. of somebody else's capital. Right.
0: Yeah, yeah. I hate I he- hate hearing those stories because as much as we can all hear stories, people come on this podcast or whatever, and everybody can you know for the most part tell a good story. It's like, but we don't get to see the inner workings, right? And you don't get to see how they manage. And yeah, unfortunately, that that does happen, and we've been hearing about it more lately. Yeah. Um, Uh, you know, people who have been out there and borrowing money. So obviously you got to be responsible with that work with people who've proven they know what they're doing and uh, and are having success. So for you in that progression, how did you become that person? What were you doing to become that person?
1: Oh, man, I I think the best thing I ever did was I started a podcast. (laughs) So honestly, because that podcast has morphed into basically everything we're doing now. Uh, On the podcast, number one, I was able to talk with people and kind of see how they got started, how they think about things. And that was a realization I had too, uh, where, you know, after doing 450 episodes, Mm. it's like, oh, there's some commonalities amongst all the most successful people. So that's that's when you start understanding the, the macro types of frameworks that that applied with real estate investing. Uh, so that was huge. Um, but also, I learned how to ask questions, I learned how to talk with people. Mm-hmm. And, and that skill set is so valuable when you're having investor conversations. You have to be able to 100%. ask quality conversations and discovery. You have to be able to transition into the, the, the pitch part. Um, but also that podcast got me comfortable enough to do a TV show and that TV show and the podcast got me comfortable enough to launch the conference and, and it just kind of snowballed from there. So nothing would, I would not be doing what I'm doing now if I hadn't launched that podcast.
0: Interesting. I didn't know about the podcast. I knew about the TV show. You still do the TV show?
1: No, we shut that down because it was, um, you know, it was more of a local type of audience. And Mm -hmm. right now we're pretty much national slash international. So it just didn't have the reach we wanted.
0: Yeah, that's the that is a little bit of a tricky thing yeah because you were burlington based pretty much with that right
1: yeah yeah so, so we were like it was on demand like so you could watch it in in ontario like anybody in the province yeah. could could watch it but you know in terms of our messaging and the stuff we're doing with the conference it's that international audience yeah. so it, it just didn't fit all the bo- tick all the boxes there so we we uh we shut that down plus you know it, it it was it was pretty time intensive as well, and yeah. uh, you know even though we would do three or four episodes in a day, it just I can't afford to lose a day of of working um, yeah. for for that smaller audience right yeah.
0: No I, I know what you mean completely and sometimes I do struggle that with that with the podcast because it's a pretty big pr- production to do like there's a lot it's, of work that is. goes into it. there's a lot of cost that goes into it and yeah um, I, what I love most about it is the people who it's connected me with and the stories 100%. and the knowledge like just like you said, like I have people on and I would learn a strategy. I would take pieces from that and I would apply it to my business it's it's improved who I am as an investor. So that part I'm, I'm grateful for, but it's a lot of work too. (laughs) It it is. And, and, and it's, it's like anything you have to do the cost
1: benefits. It's like, Hey, can I bang out four meetings with my team and help coach my team that then, then can give, Mm. give me leverage to get something. Or do I speak to this smaller audience of people? Well, and and that's where you have to weigh that. Right. Mm -hmm. And right now, you know, with everything we're doing, it's all about team. So, Hey, like, can I run a sales meeting and do coaching with the team? That will then help them, uh, you know, get the message out even more, all all that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah, I'm wondering if maybe like podcasts are passe, you know, like, I don't know, it feels (laughs) like, it feels like in the post, everything went to shit era, (laughs) that podcasts are not nearly as popular for real estate. Like people are more like into, they want to know economics. They want to know macroeconomics so they can get into the fear porn or the hope porn. Uh, yeah, but... I, I, love I, I haven't heard
1: that before. That's awesome.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so I, I don't know. Um, that's just my take on it because my podcast used to grow like crazy and it's been pretty stagnant since everything kind of uh, yeah. kind of went that way. Yeah,
1: it's for sure there's seasonality in terms of not, you know, the spring, summer, fall type of stuff, but in terms mm-hmm. of the, the macro kind of interest people have. Um, I don't think podcasts are passe. We're actually relaunching my podcast in a different format uh, now after a couple of years hiatus, just because we feel that's going to give us a more international reach rather than that TV show. Yeah, that's that's um,
0: that's smart. Yeah, for sure. Yeah.
1: So, but, uh, but yeah, I don't think podcasts are passe. I think in in terms of expectations of quality and and the niches. So the mistake I think I made was I was too niche. So I kept it very real estate focused mm-hmm. with the podcast. And I honestly, after I think we did four hundred and over four hundred and fifty episodes total. Dude, that's insane. <laughs> I I got so bored with it because it yeah. was you know people liked it. Like we had good listeners, like a, a, a pretty decent audience. But I was so bored. So now with the revamp podcast, you know I've learned so much in terms of. In terms of marketing, scaling teams, all that kind of stuff. So now we're making it a little bit more broad. Like so entrepreneurship. I can, yeah, so I can explore. Yes, yeah, still we have real estate raising capital, but I want to explore people doing really cool shit in terms yeah. of building out sales teams and and all that kind yeah. of stuff because it that that's what interests me, right?
0: Yeah, that's super cool, and I, I feel similar. Like. I mean, for me, like I started talking, we're talking about burrs on duplexes and duplex conversions. And it got to a point where I'm like, I can't talk about this anymore. Like, We have to go bigger, which is why we end up talking about people syndicating deals and starting funds and, and, you know, kind of doing different things. And I don't feel like by any means I've explored every topic within it. Like we can keep it fresh, Um, but there will come a point and there there certainly are times where I just want to talk about cool entrepreneurial ideas, which we'll still do. I guess the rule with this podcast is, and always has been, got to at least own a property or have at least invested in real estate you got to be an investor of real estate but then we'll talk about whatever uh which is what the way this goes so i agree with you about the niche thing but it's hard sometimes if you go out of your niche too far that uh you know then then who do you serve you know he who serves everyone serves no one right 100
1: percent Yep. It's a fine balance.
0: You need the fine balance, but for sure, then you got your Joe Rogan examples and I had people throw that at me back when I started my podcast. Oh, just do a general podcast like Joe Rogan. I'm like, who's going to listen to some random guy they never heard of? <laughs> Joe Rogan yeah. had established credibility before he started.
1: Yeah. hundred percent. You know, yeah. fear factor, his comedy. Yeah. Like, fear uh, some factor. Kind of comedy. Stuff. Yeah. yeah, exactly.
0: So, yeah. Anyway, so what's the podcast called? What's yours called so people can find yeah, it? Yeah, we're rebranding it as the cool shit yeah. podcast. So okay.
1: basically, uh i just want to talk with people doing cool shit in business and pushing the boundaries in their space
2: yeah.
1: uh, and, and that gives us so much leeway in terms of diving yeah. into sales systems lead acquisition you know just vision kind of stuff and also investing as yeah.
0: well yeah i like that a lot that sounds that sounds like something i want to listen to so yeah. just keep me posted on that man okay
1: sure yeah we're we're just uh in the middle of doing the first uh the first batch of episodes so
0: nice is it like Interview in person or is it mostly you? Like how, how are you doing it?
1: Yeah, yeah. We're we're really trying to get uh the in-person component. Uh, cause I, you know, I did everything before on Zoom and it got old. Um, mm-hmm. and I find in person there's a, a better feel in terms of the conversation. Oh, yeah. Uh, but that also does limit like I can't fly across the country just to record a podcast. We're not there yet. Uh so you know, it does limit our uh our guests. Uh, Our ability to do, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. get guests in and stuff like that. But I think we've got more than enough talent in the pipeline uh, for now
0: we we sure do like i mean i yeah. do 90 95 percent uh, in person and then like yeah. that five percent like right now because i'm away we'll be doing zoom episodes yeah. we were originally going to do uh you know in studio because we're both in burlington there's no reason for us not to other than yeah. i'm in florida right now <laughs> yeah. but yeah. Uh, and i didn't want to wait on this like i know you got your conference coming up and i wanted to talk about that because i'm sure plenty of my audience is going to want to go there uh yeah. check out your your conference um but we're we're still in the story we're still in talking about you so the podcast is coming back around I had no idea you hosted one before but it's it's a funny coincidence that I feel the same way. The podcast like really started everything. I was already established before, but it just like it opened doors and I'm really, yep. uh, really grateful for that. So, okay, you're yep. scaling up. Uh, you were, and when did you pull the trigger on the first syndication? Yeah, I know and it was probably a similar timeframe to the multifamily family conference, wasn't it? Or you were slightly before that, I would guess.
1: No, no, it, it was before, yeah. So so the way I did that was through uh, a, a co-GP relationship. So um, I, I got on board with um, uh, with uh, an experienced operator, um, got on that uh, GP team. And uh, and that was my my first uh, deal on the syndication side. I uh, guess, you know, like, like if you're looking to do, let's say a 200 unit building, whatever it is, and you're coming in fresh, like you don't know the system, like you know the theory, but you haven't applied mm-hmm. it yet. And I, I use the example of, let's say Google, right? People will go work at Google They'll learn their systems, then they'll go out and launch their startup. Um, it's the same kind of thing. Like, you want to get your feet wet. It gives you a little bit of a track record. You're able to see how people do it. You'll, you'll find things you like about how they operate, what you don't like, and then you put your own spin on it. Mm-hmm. Um, so EP was a great way to get involved um, in the first syndication for 100%.
0: And how did you how did you negotiate your way into that? Because a lot of people would want to do what you just did and they would do it for free, but would still be rejected because they would just be a burden. Like they wouldn't know enough to add value. Well, so how did yeah. you do it?
1: Well, okay, this is like a whole like podcast episode in itself <laughs>
0: <laughs> because I,
1: I can tell you, you know, because of what we do with the conference and everything, we get pitched on a daily basis from people, and I, I think it's so easy to see. Where people just come at it through the frame of, "Hey, I want this from you." It's so easy to see that. Mm-hmm. So if you're if you're pitching anybody, whether you want to participate in a future deal or whatever, it's like, "Hey, what can you give me?" But you have to flip it around, and you actually have to give it some thought. Uh, so you know, for instance, if if you if you have a deal and I want to co GP with you. I'm not going to be like, hey, listen, like, what, what are you doing with co-GPs? Or, hey, what what are, what are kind of splits are you offering your co-GPs? Like, that's not the question to ask. No. The question to ask is, hey, Andrew, I heard you just got this deal under contract. I was kind of noticing, like, I was looking at your team. It doesn't really seem like you have somebody dedicated to your investor funnels for your cold leads. You know, I was kind of giving it some thought. Like, um, And this is something I have a lot of experience in you know, do you mind having a 15-minute conversation about how I can help you set that up? Yeah. Totally different conversation. I've given it some thought. I've actually done some research. I found a place where I can add value. And now I'm giving my pitch, right? Like, yeah. like very different way to approach it. And um, And I have to say, like with our conference, it's just, well, there's so much junk that comes our way just because people are just taking the wrong approach with it.
0: Oh, yeah, like... I mean, I'm sure you got it too. Uh, with the podcast, I get people reaching out to me daily, telling me how I can optimize my YouTube channel for keywords oh, <laughs> and, how, yeah. and and pitching me on guests for the podcast. And hey, I listened to one episode of your podcast, and I think this guest would be great. And, Which they
1: never even listened to. It's copied yeah. <laughs> and pasted. Like they, it, it, like it, it's just ridiculous. They're like, and, I
0: specifically like this episode, and it just happens to be the most recent episode. <laughs> it's
1: just, and, and that, that's I mean, we can yeah. even talk about cold outreach but in terms of stuff right
0: like this that's just really shitty
1: cold outreach
0: it is because the only ones that really catch me and this is why i don't do virtual episodes because i get booking agents going after me constantly pitching people and they get paid to place them so they don't know me and it's just a blind game and a couple of times i found really great guests through that but the ones that are most likely to stand out to me actually either work for the company like of the person that they're trying to place and they know them intimately well. And they pitch me on why they fit on my podcast and would be a value to my audience. Now they all say they know why their guest would be a value to my audience, but it's like, just, I don't know. It, it never really grabs me. It feels very insincere. And yeah. uh, and I can tell they put no time into it, but when I get the vibe that they put some time into it, now I'm listening.
1: Oh, hundred percent. You know, Oh, what's that book called? It's not on the shelf. Oh, I forget the, the, I forget the title of it. So if somebody's looking to improve their cold outreach, it was written by a, the guy who, uh, ran the Salesforce, um, outbound team. Oh, I, I, and it, it was a groundbreaking book for us, but, um, just look up the guy who ran Salesforce and he's, he has a book.
0: I'll be interested oh. in that too, man.
1: Yeah. You know what here? The, oh, here it is here. Um, uh, predictable
0: Revenue. Okay, Predictable Revenue. So sum- summarize the book for me and why it would be a value for uh, for my audience.
1: Yeah, so ba- basically uh, Predictable uh, Revenue, the author is Aaron Ross, if anybody's uh, wondering. Um, When he took over the Salesforce uh, sales team, um, they were trying to expand into the market and they were doing, and they needed to do a lot of active outreach uh, to companies because nobody knew who Salesforce was. So they had to pick up the phone or send emails and get, appointments and in the door with all these accounts. Uh, So he basically outlines exactly how they did it in terms of the types of messaging that worked for cold outreach. Like You can't just spam like those podcast people. You can't just spam one templated message. Uh, And they actually found the more effort you put into personalizing an email, the better results you're going to get. So yeah, some people are like, oh, well, I send a thousand emails a day. Yeah, but they're Hmm. all shit. If you only yep. sent a hundred emails a day, but took a lot of effort, your response rate will go through the roof, and it goes into building out uh, building out um, you know SDR or BDR teams for cold outreach, and it kind of scales from there. Uh, so it's really a, a sales team mm-hmm. uh, prospecting type of book, but for cold outreach, like it, this uh, this had a big impact, and it's actually had an impact on a lot of uh, major companies because this uh, these guys were really the forefront of separating in the sales process, your prospecting component and your closing or sales component. So before most people would have the salesperson, they'd reach out prospect and then they would close themselves. What Aaron Ross did was he separated the prospecting. So you have people just focused on outbound And then they qualify and then send the person up the food chain uh, to the closer. And that just makes everybody more efficient, more specialized, um, and and you have different KPIs there. So it's just a better way of doing things. So it's a classic book at this point, uh, but I, I definitely recommend it for sure.
0: Interesting. I I hope they have an audible version.
1: (laughs) Uh, I guarantee you they do. (laughs)
0: Okay. Yeah. Like I've been actually uh, nerding out on some great books lately. And uh, that sounds like a great one to, uh, to add into the mix. One of the, um, well, there was a key point that I was going to make here about uh, a distinction. Oh yes. uh, People working for money or education. And I think there's not enough people willing to work for education and you know pitching on like if you're trying to go after if you want to scale you want to go to funds you want to go you know build storage developments or whatever if you've never done that it'd be insane to try and do it entirely on your own it's like a surgeon that's going into their first surgery but they never apprenticed under another surgeon you know like no one wants to be the operating the operation patient no (laughs) like you you know it's it's never going to be that way you're going to be you're going to be the second hand and then once you've got your feet you know under you then you can you can be the lead hand
1: oh 100 like if i could go back in time in a magic time machine i would do things so much differently number one if i decided i'd wanted to sell real estate again, I wouldn't start out from scratch. I would find the very best agent in the marketplace and work with them on their team, learn their systems and branch out. Um, But uh, yeah, in the best case scenario, go back in time, I would start working in private equity. I would find the market leader because they figured it out. And as a new person, you're probably going to raise capital. Right? That's the best thing to do. You're in that sales role. You're going to have all that company's track record behind you. So it's going to make your, your pitches a whole lot easier and removes the pressure of you being new. You're, go- you're going to have all this track record. And then when you decide a couple of years later, just go out on your own, you have all the connections. You can say you participated in X billions of dollars. You've oh, raised yeah. X amount of money. Like, hey, yeah, I spent uh, you know three years working at X, Y, and Z company. Instant credibility. So, I and and that's where I I think looking at some people who have done it really well from the start, they all have done something like that. Hey, I've gained a whole lot of credibility, I've built the track record. Now, you start going out on your own. I like if I could replay my life for the past 10 years, that's exactly what I would do.
0: That's interesting that you say that because I thought about that. I used to think, okay, what would I have done differently? I would have one, yes, gone and worked for the absolute best and who cares what the split is? Who cares what I make? Just go work for the best and and one day I'll be there. One day I'll be able to do it on my own. Yeah,
1: Um, you're basically building your resume at that point. And and most importantly, you're learning the system because Mm -hmm. that company, that top producer has already figured it out. They know exactly how to do it what to put like all that kind of stuff you're basically getting the blueprint of success that's oh, yeah. that's what you're that's what you're doing and you're getting paid to to learn it right
0: Oh yeah. Like hundred percent. And I always just had this feeling like I couldn't, I couldn't really be an employee. I didn't feel like I'd be a good one, but in hindsight, if I had been doing something that I could absolutely see the path, like I could see why that would work. I, you know, would have been a no brainer. Yeah, for um, sure. I just wasn't very good at getting jobs. That's why I had to become an entrepreneur, but you're speaking yeah. to a professional wheel creator. I uh, I've been inventing the wheel my entire career. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. uh, I'm learning from past mistakes now. And I'm just purely like, let's go after people who have expertise. Let's, you know, let's yeah. synthesize ideas, multiple people who know what they're doing and let's bring those together and push through. Yeah. But yeah. in saying that though, hindsight's always twenty twenty, And it's so <laughs> easy for me to say that now,
1: because now I've got some yeah. gray hair, but, but part of the reason why you and I are doing what we're doing is because we had that mentality of, Hey, like, let's just do it.
0: Let's go try. So, it. yeah. so
1: it's, it's kind of, it's kind of hard to say, but yeah, like, People ask me all the time, like they'll message me on Instagram or whatever, come up to me at events. And I kind of give them the same thing if they're younger. I'm like, go find the best, learn what they do, and then put your own spin on it and just go crush it.
0: Exactly, you gotta, you gotta have the nuance. Uh, another thing I wanted to, to go back to just what, with what you said, like getting out and and, and being and delivering quality, like outreach with quality, because now we're in an age where you can skip trace lace, lists of 10,000 people and text them, put them on automated campaigns for emails and text. But if you just do that, they're just gonna like hate you and say, F off, get, stop emailing
1: me. Yeah, 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 well, there's two different approaches, right? And both can work. You can do the the spray and pray approach where you're working on volume, mm-hmm. or you can uh kind of throw spears. And that's kind of an Aaron Ross-ism uh from, from the book. Uh and we've done, we've had experience in both uh mm-hmm. with some different teams. Uh we've tried the the volume play, and yeah, does it work? Yes. Is it um do you have a lot higher churn? Like, there's you're just volume all the time. Um, we've really shifted our approach to that more spear approach, where we're we know exactly who we're going after, and we will take the time and the effort to make sure that mm. outreach is quality to make sure we get in front of them. Yeah, Um, and, and I think there we can be a lot. The quality's higher. Our appointment rates are higher. Our closing rate's higher. I think it's better for the sales rep because their confidence goes up. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's just a more pleasant... And we have less... We have Instead of having 10,000 people we're dialing, maybe it's 1,000 people on our list. And it's just... It's just that I find a better way of doing things. Um, So it's like, hey, if you're a company, whatever it is, let's say you're a real estate investor, to use a real estate example. And you know... That uh, you really want this specific type of asset. Instead of sending millions of emails or just blasting direct mail across the neighborhood, well, do an extra bit of work. Find the 50 asset owners in that marketplace who own exactly what you want. And go after those people in a very targeted, personalized way, Uh, right? And and you know, like, you're going to be way more qualified on the phone because you know exactly the type of asset they have. Your conversations will be better. You'll be able to tailor your pitch specifically to that type of person. But if you're going volume, you can't do that. Like, you, you have to be more general, and does it work yes but i would rather have specialists at work right
0: it, it works up to a point until you hit a saturation point with uh, enough yeah. other people doing the same thing and then they get numb to it and yeah, once they get sure. numb to it then now everybody has to rethink their approach
1: yeah you, you have to find a, a new hook like a new angle on it for sure yeah 100 percent. yeah
0: so when you're talking about this you're talking about the buildings that you're going after
1: Oh well, this applies to everything. Um, okay. Not only not only to the acquisition on the real estate side, but also um, our sales side in terms of our sponsorship team with the conference. Uh, you know, we, we did we did high volume, then we did targeted you know, we, we've done everything. Um, so yeah, I can speak to the real estate investing experience also to like the more business kind of systems.
0: Well, let's take a a moment and just talk about what you're doing for the acquisitions, what type of buildings you said, hundred to 250. Um, what States are you going after? You know, if there's key cities, just, you know, a quick elevator pitch on how you, how you approach all that.
1: Yeah, for, for sure. So what we're going after where you are right now. So, uh, we are, uh, we we're putting a lot of effort into Florida, uh, you know, the Tampa market, Saint Petersburg, um, you know, uh, markets surrounding those areas. And we're fortunate, you know, we have a gentleman named Paul Hopkins. He's our acquisitions director, uh, so that's his full-time job.
0: To is to uh, just hunt, outreach. So he's hunt hunt just laser deals. focusing and, and contacting yeah. sellers in that in that niche.
1: Yeah, well, because you know, going back to the specialization, you know, that, that's you know, you build a team, you have specialists involved, and that way you get really, really good at one thing. Uh mm-hmm. so his job is to uh put deals into our funnel, underwrite them and source opportunities. And and then we get those under contract.
0: Okay, so he's doing the outright uh, outreach and the underwriting. 100%. Yep. Okay. Cool. So uh, sales and analytics mixed. That's good. That's a good uh match.
1: Yeah. And now eventually as the team matures, you know, because we're, we're building out the business, you know, that that's going to separate. So we'll yeah, have, you're gonna have two different jobs. So he's right. wearing
0: both hats, but doesn't yeah. need to be that way. Yeah. hundred yeah. percent. Okay. So, so why, why Southwest Florida is there? I mean, it can't be the cap rate. I mean, the cap rates aren't, aren't bad, but uh, there are definitely higher cap rates elsewhere.
1: Oh yeah. But, but we, we, we don't buy on cap rate. Any professional investor won't buy based on the cap rate. You know that that's almost irrelevant in the conversation. Um, in, in terms of you know why we're we're focused on Florida, uh, we feel there's a lot of runway left in that market, and we're talking you know thirty to fifty year horizon there. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of jobs created. Uh, the and then we get into government policy. Uh, we get into the nicer weather too. Uh, so who wants to deal with snow in Edmonton? Uh, when mm-hmm. you can have a nice pool that's open all year round um but uh yeah so one of the things we really look for is uh are you know the drivers that play in the market what's really pushing that growth and uh, we've seen this well it's no secret to you but you know every you know the the two coasts are in trouble right now um in, in the U.S uh government policy affordability all that all that kind of uh, all those things at play and uh, people are moving to where the jobs are and uh, f- yeah. Florida we feel is a, a strong market for not only the short term but also the long term
0: yeah I mean there's a lot of uh, you know people that argue on the other side well it'll be underwater or the hurricanes or the, you know the insurance pricing and all that which I mean it, to be fair yeah the hurricane obviously hit yeah. a lot of people pretty good um, how are you kind of managing that objection and then what are the what are the uh, industries that you see opening up employment here
1: yeah well speaking of insurance like that that for sure, that, that's something we have to get around because insurance uh, rates have tripled. So we have a couple different ways that we can, um, uh, the strategies that we use to uh, make sure that we uh, can enjoy some lower insurance rates, uh, which is a benefit because that makes us more competitive uh, come off for time. Um, also, when we walk deals, we bring our insurance guy with us. So we're getting, you know, instead of just walking the deal then going back to insurance, we bring the insurance guy there on site and we're getting real time feedback on what they think. We're always looking, hey, is this in a floodplain? Yes or no. Yeah. Right. Um, in Florida, think,
0: odds are it is. <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, yes and no, right? Like hundred year
0: floodplain, you know, it could be yeah, the five hundred well, exactly. year. And and that's still very, very workable. You should be able to build in that. You should be able to to operate in that.
1: Oh, 100%, right? Um, so, you know, we're, we're asking all, all those questions uh, when we're walking properties. We're doing our, re- or, sorry, um, our acquisitions director is doing that research before we even uh, walk these properties. Um, and uh, and yeah, it, and it all comes down to the business plan. You know, with what we feel we can uh, achieve in terms of uh, rent premiums and, and the value add in terms of the asset uh, based on where the property is today and where we see insurance rates going and all those types of things, can we hit our targets? If the answer is yes, we pursue it. If the answer is no, it's okay. There's always another yeah. deal.
0: So when you say you're, you're not focused on cap rate, I'm guessing that's because you have some sort of a value add strategy. It's not about the rents going in. It's about what your plan is.
1: For sure, like for sure. Um, you, you always need, uh, like we use the two value levers. You got uh, physical improvements and operational efficiencies. You're pulling one or both of those to drive the value of the asset. Um, and, and so with, with cap rate, you know, I, all the time and generally i'm going to make a a general statement here but you know when when we hear people saying oh i only buy an eight cap rate uh those are generally not the more sophisticated investors agree um yeah. who, who 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 say that right like the most the the smartest people i know who own billions of dollars of real estate mm-hmm. um they don't really give a shit about cap rate <laughs> like that's not because it doesn't allow for the nuance,
0: them. right? And, and yeah. of course, it doesn't allow for the improvement plan. Uh, if, Of course, if you're the type of investor that only buys stabilized, you know, optimized assets, then maybe then you could say, okay, a cap rate is the the primary focus, yeah, but, but uh, otherwise not really.
1: Yeah. But, but even then though, like, let's say you're doing a core or a core plus type of play where you're acquiring a premium asset with very little work or no work needed whatsoever. You're, you're really focused on the market drivers there and the long-term appreciation of the play. The, mm-hmm the cap rate's still pretty much i would argue irrelevant at that point because with the core uh, type of asset you're buying in a premium location in a major metro and you're getting right. the very best building yeah like cap it doesn't the cap rate's irrelevant because you're making your money on the 10 year 20 year horizon there on that yeah. deal right so Well, tell me about
0: that tell me about what what you see um like what, what you like about florida what what do you see coming that that's really you know got you excited and wanting to you know pursue that market
1: oh for sure well you just look at well speaking as a canadian i know you have listeners on both sides of the border but as a canadian like there are so many people who i know personally who have packed up their life and moved to florida yep so many people, and it's that's just within my small little circle. When you start looking at other circles, it's it's a bit of a migration uh to Florida right now. Um, and there's a number of reasons for, for that. Uh policy for, for one is a ma- major driver of that. Um, and uh and yeah, and just in terms of job creation numbers, the markets we're looking yeah. to get into, you know, for instance, like Tampa, uh, we see a lot of growth uh potential there. Like, it, it's like just are there all new the,
0: industries coming to Tampa? Because this is one of those things where I've never been able to get like clear. Hey, this is happening in Florida. Like, I know just with more people, you're going to have more jobs because the job for, service the people.
1: For, for sure. Well, well, you look at you know the ma- lot, most of the major metros now. Like, we have pretty diverse economies that are operating mm-hmm. there. It's oh, not. Sure. It's not like any more. You know, even if we look at the uh, the the central Canada before you you looked at Edmonton, Calgary, it was oil and gas. Now you have tech in there. You have like, it's pretty diverse. So is there a new like major industry that's coming into that market that nobody's ever seen before? No. Are a lot of young workers in the the prime working years of their life moving to that market? 100%. And what's going to drive that economy? Yeah
0: yep and that's right. going to make companies make the decision to go there hey we've got the population that can staff this like we can we can attract people here and i think a lot of employers are going to look at florida and say we can attract people here Well oh, people want sure. come here it's like Burlington versus Toronto. If you're trying to hire people to work like white collar jobs in Burlington, you'd have to pay a premium because or you'd have to take second tier potentially uh, over what the first tier because they all want to be in downtown Toronto because that's the desirable place. Right. So I think there's a lot of you kind of woo people with, hey, it's Florida.
1: Yeah, yeah. You get lots of young couples moving in, yeah. um, you know, newly married, newly engaged, whatever, long term relationship or a mm-hmm. couple with a child. Like those are yeah. your prime working years, like the late twenties, early thirties, like that that's where companies can really grow. And people are moving to where the jobs are. It's no secret. That's why people are leaving California. Number one, the affordability is ridiculous. Government policy isn't fixing any issues. Like mm-hmm. people need jobs and they need affordable living.
0: Yep. Yeah, yeah, and in Florida still is very relatively affordable. You know, very much so over over like California um, and New York City. Like New York State's cheap, but um, but yeah, it's it's cheap. Like you can still, especially considered like even compared to Ontario, like you can still get like a brand new construction four bed, three bath house for, you know, under $600,000. I know. Cause I just sold one not long ago. Um, yeah. So it's, yeah. It, it's definitely a place where like relatively you can live a better life, assuming you keep, if you could keep your, you know, Toronto based income and move down here, your, your dollar goes further, even yeah, after and, the exchange. And-
1: yeah, hundred percent. And when we look at multifamily now, depending on the, the market and, and stuff like that, but, um, you know, for a class B type of asset, you could be in that 120 to 140 range per unit, mm-hmm. um, for, for a, a class B asset. Now, again, uh, depending on the market, like that's, that, that that's not bad at all. Like that, that's, yeah. that's a good range to be in,
0: right? Like you, you don't need to go jack the rents or anything to make those numbers work. It, it should work. Reasonable. Well, no, like, well,
1: obviously, you know, raising the rents is going to be part of the business plan for sure. Of course, But right, y- right?
0: you don't need to do it to the level you'd need to do it in say Ontario to make, to make your oh, numbers well, make sense. Well,
1: yeah. So, so rent control is a whole different issue, right? Yeah. Because that's going to, that's when I slow you down because you're basically waiting for unit churn at that point. Yeah. So so a 5-year business plan turns into a 10-year
0: business yeah. plan at that point, right? So in Florida is uh is it assumed like once the lease runs out that you're just month to month?
1: Yeah, so so in terms of like how we underwrite and this will kind of give you a breakdown of uh, like how we look at deals and everything. Like we make very um very conservative assumptions based on rent increase itself. But what we're doing is we're like, let's say, let's say we have a $250 premium um, that we think we can achieve once we do X, Y, and Z renovations. Like we're not banking on all of that coming in year one. Like that's, that's ridiculous. Like it never happens that way. You're Mm -hmm. not going to acquire an an asset and just, just be like, Oh, uh, Mr. And Mrs. Renton uh, renter. We've just acquired the asset. Uh, Now. Oh, uh, your rents increased by 250 bucks. Like that's insane. So you have to spread that out over the next couple of years because you know, there's a couple of different things you can do. Number one, you can go to an existing tenant and say, hey, listen, right now you're living in a basic or vanilla unit. We can actually come in and add some new countertops for you. We can add some new flooring, like some lipstick stuff. And then in, in exchange for that, we'll charge you this amount. That gives you a head start on the turn that you're going to do anyway, but it also allows you to like get a pre- premium already and help start driving that NOI without pissing the person off and causing issues in terms of like, cause if you have good tenants, like mm. why would you scare them away? It's a customer service type of thing at that point. Um, so no, like, like it's not like you're going in on day one and just jacking the rent at yeah. like
0: 200 bucks. So like
1: no, nobody's doing but that.
0: that wouldn't make sense though, because the market already normalizes because there is no rent control. So units are just priced appropriately.
1: hundred percent. Right. So, you know, when we're looking at, uh, premiums, like knowing your comps is so important. So you you have to know, hey, you know, these three surrounding properties, they're they're achieving this type of rent premium with these types of amenities. This is a vintage. This is the size. This is all the kind of stuff they Mm -hmm. offer. Now, how does our property stack up against this? And that's the art of underwriting and and just understanding, okay, well, this is how we can fit into the market and bring something unique
0: very cool um okay so i want to shift gears because uh there's so much we could talk about but we're limited on this time so uh talk to me about the conference just you know high level um obviously that's a huge undertaking we were talking about this when we were at the simulator about a month ago and you were telling me some of the numbers and you know you're dealing with big numbers a lot of people and a lot of balls in the air so to speak tell me about it
1: yeah yes well we are the country's largest real estate investing conference, which is pretty crazy to say. Uh but yeah, we 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 bring in a lot of people. Uh so we're May uh May 24th to 26th in Toronto. Uh this year we have uh Jordan Belfort coming. Um, I'm excited about that. He's running a two-hour workshop for uh, uh our VIP ticket tier on how to improve their capital raising conversations. So we were talking about raising money. Like, How do you have better conversations and, and improve your closing rate for investors? I think that's really, really cool. Um, then we've got Robert Herjavec uh, from Shark Tank coming in. Kevin O'Leary uh, was with us our first year. He was excellent. So we're bringing Robert in uh, this year. And then we have a third mystery speaker. Uh, the ladies are gonna really enjoy uh, this one. I can't uh, say that name, uh, but yeah, like we are, the event to go to if you're looking to raise more capital, find more deals. We had people doing deals at the conference, we had people finding investors. Like this is where the multifamily space comes to meet
0: yeah it's super super exciting and like you've got so like this is a full-time job putting this on right on an annual basis like your work oh, is oh yeah. your yeah, work but, starts the day the day after the last conference no
1: our work starts 14 months before the conference so before
0: yeah. we've actually fulfilled the one event
1: we're already planning the next year's event it's insane. you've already
0: booked the space you've already done all that <laughs> it, it,
1: it's like we have a full-time team that literally works on this thing all year round it, it's ridiculous
0: Man, if you had to, if you had to pull it all together and just like give one piece of advice uh, for people who want to kind of take the step from where they're at to go far beyond what they ever thought they could, um, what would you say?
1: Ah, um, can I, uh, do I have to be politically correct? Or can I just say like, yeah, (laughs) have some balls and just do it like, like really, um, you know, with all the crazy stuff. If I would have thought about it and hum and hawed and thought about everything that would go wrong, there's no way no way I would be doing what I'm doing now. Like I had the idea of running the conference, I made the phone call and I got things in motion and I figured it out as I went. Because like the, the thing is if you hum and haw, you'll probably dip one toe in. And yeah. if you dip one toe in, you're not fully committed. You have to burn the boats, cut the cord, whatever. Yeah. metaphor you want to use cut the cord dive in with, with dive in head first and you'll figure it out because you have no other option yeah um so that's yeah that's kind of my so with this one on some...
0: you knew you knew Erwin who had had hosted one big conference. Yeah, uh, for sure. So so I guess you could ask him some questions, but other than that you were just doing it inventing the wheel yourself.
1: Yeah, yeah. So Erwin uh was great. He was very supportive. He was my shoulder to cry on um many times uh in getting the first one off the ground. But in in terms of the scale and how we operate, there's no true comparison in like our marketplace so a lot of this stuff is we're kind of figuring it out as we go and making those mistakes and adjusting accordingly
0: and now from a cash flow standpoint like are you uh, like i think we were talking about this but you're like hundreds of thousands if not millions of dollars outlaid before the event uh
1: yeah the the (laughs) event we are um we are in excess of three million dollars to run this event
0: like prior so and how much of that is before the event actually happens most of but it.
1: That's the thing That's the thing with events. <laughs> Everything has to get paid in advance. Yeah. So e- events are a very ugly business model because you have to pay everybody up front and most of your revenue, everybody's always the same, no matter what we they do. They book the last week. Oh, <laughs> uh, They always book the last minute. Like 50% yeah. of our revenue comes in the last three weeks. So no matter what you do, that's just human nature. Yeah. So you have all this capital to go out and it has to sit there and you have to weather these cash flow crunches. And yeah. then in the last three weeks, it's like, oh, we just sold 1,500 tickets in three weeks. Imagine that. Yeah.
0: Right. So uh, it has its stresses. Like, did you, so you've run two so far or three? Yeah. This is our third year. Yeah. This is your third coming up. Yeah. Have you been profitable yet? Uh, yes. Uh, so our first
1: year, we, we broke even. And then, uh, and then last year we, we did okay. And then, uh, this
0: year we'll, we'll be okay too. You'll be better. Hopefully a little bit better. Okay. Yes. Yeah. That's but amazing. It, you profited, you broke even on your first year. That's like incredible. And then did it we, again.
1: Yeah, we, we, we did like it's, but events like it's, it's an, ugl- it's ugly. It's an ugly model. It yeah. really is. Um, and uh so yeah, why do it is awkward. the obvious
0: question why do it and i I know I know the answer here, but or at least I know what I would say, but go ahead
1: yeah, well, well, there's a couple of very selfish reasons right like there's like the there's yeah, like I was not help, happy with the level of education out there and the resources available in the marketplace, and I was frustrated when I was getting into multifamily i I thought everything out there was garbage uh so i I felt I could do a better job. Um, So yeah, we're helping people that way. But for for the selfish reasons, number one, I want to hang out with these cool people and it gives me the connections. And number two, talk about brand building. There's no better way to expand your brand than live events. There's no substitute. Like We could do podcast episodes all day long. You run a major event that brings in 3,000 people no contest
0: yeah it doesn't matter like it's just who would take your call right the amount of people who would take your call well um it's going to be a lot more than before you ran the event and i remember hearing kevin o'leary say that right now that's that's what kevin o'leary said about being on tv yeah go ahead
1: yep yeah and and not to mention now like people are calling me, <laughs> I'm not calling them, which is like a reversal yeah. of the way it, it is uh, now too. So yeah, huge benefits, but like events yeah. are really, really, really hard. And that's why only a small percentage of people can run them well.
0: Yeah, you've got your work uh, cut out for you, but uh, it's, it's really cool, man. It's a really cool story and it's uh, very impressive to say the least. So if people wanna join the, or yeah. attend the conference this year, um, what should I tell them?
1: Yeah. Well, they should use your, uh, special link, uh, to get their tickets. So if we don't have that yet, uh, you can put that in, in the show notes. Sure. Yeah. We'll put a and, special uh, link
0: there in the, uh, in yeah. the show notes for sure.
1: Yeah. And, uh, and that's the best way, but if you're just interested in general real estate investing stuff, uh, find me on YouTube. We have got hundreds of videos, youtube.com slash Seth Ferguson.
0: Perfect. Well, Seth, thank you very much for doing this. Uh, it's great as always to connect with you and, uh, hope we can make it a more regular thing
1: yeah i hope you enjoyed the uh, sun in florida even though it's kind of chilly because the weather here is uh gloomy
0: it's gloomy i, I can't handle that so yeah absolutely yeah, <laughs> yeah. awesome all thanks right. thanks and now a word from our sponsor Control and compound
2: infinite banking in under 60 seconds we've all got to save our money somewhere and we think that a high cash value life insurance policy is the perfect place to save it Why? We're going to save our money inside this policy, and it's going to grow tax-free. Down the road, we're going to get hit with an emergency or an opportunity, maybe a chance to buy a business, real estate property, an income-producing asset. And instead of withdrawing from our savings account, we're going to leverage that asset. We're going to borrow the insurance company's money, and we're going to invest in that opportunity. Our money is still inside of that policy compounding uninterrupted tax-free and our monies outside in this investment opportunity. We're going to rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat, all while providing a death benefit for our families. Down the road, we're going to retire. Now we retire with a high cash value life insurance policy with a lot of cash. We're going to start taking those policy loans again, but this time we're never going to pay them back. When I say never, I mean we're going to pay them back with the death benefit when we die, and our families are going to get left with the rest completely tax-free.
0: For more information, visit www.ControlandCompound.com forward slash Andrew Hines.